Great power competition sounds very clean, but we need to understand the complexity of it below that level. The human is still at the center of it all. Everything else is just a mechanism that is being used to influence the human element at the end of the day, and we have to be able to do better in understanding it. Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's Mad Scientist podcast. I'm Matt Sanisbert of the Combat Capabilities Development Command's Armament Center within Army Futures Command, and I'll be joined in just a moment by Luke Shabro, Deputy Director of Mad Scientist. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter at ArmyMadSci, or subscribe to the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.nil. On today's episode, we'll be talking with Dr. Alexandra Nesik. Dr. Nesik is the co-founder of Valkamir, a research development and advisory company analyzing the root causes of unconventional warfare, hybrid threats, interstate political violence, and extremism. And she is also visiting faculty for the Countering Violent Extremism and Countering Terrorism Fellowship Program at the Joint Special Operations University, U.S. SOCOM. She will be talking today about the human element in war, the proper perspective in which to view technological advances, and the continued need to explore the brain. As always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started. Dr. Nesik, thanks for joining us. Hi, Luke. Thanks for having me. All right. So um, based on your background um, and what, what you've looked at in terms of the human element and, and these elements of terrorism, we've withdrawn recently largely from Syria and Iraq. We're looking at a peace deal right now that might precipitate a withdrawal from Afghanistan. Operational tempo in North Africa is fluctuating. So the global war on terrorism, for appearances sake, seems to be over. Is it over? Did we win? And can we focus on great state competition and conflict now? Well, that's a that's a loaded question. <laughs> um, I, I, I think I'm going to refrain from answering very specifically about did we win. I think that's a relative um, assessment and evaluation. I think the different people would have a different answer to that. But I think that um, focusing um, our attention on the great power uh, the great state competition and that that larger space. I think, at least from looking at it from the from the human domain perspective, because that is where I focus uh, my work and research, is that um, I am afraid that we might focus on great power competition a little too much conventionally, in terms of looking at the conflict uh, primarily as a state-on-state -state violence, rather than understanding that a lot of the elements of this great power competition is actually the hybrid, asymmetric type of warfare, where human element is essential uh, component to be understood, to be analyzed, to be properly assessed and properly engaged with. And I am unfortunately not seeing a lot of our efforts or a lot of our conversations um, around the great power competition sort of stay on that bigger political military level rather than uh, looking into, well, what is Russia, China, Iran, uh, what are they doing in terms of um, the, you know, the utility of 
all of the instruments of warfare and instruments of power. And so uh, while I think that it's good to orient ourselves uh, more along the lines of looking at our state adversaries, I think that our uh, the global war on terror is far from over um, in reality within the space of human element. And the, the changing dynamics on the ground are also telling us that. Wait and see uh, how many other terrorist organizations might want to pick up the model, the Taliban negotiation model right now uh, that Al-Qaeda is looking into negotiating with the French in Africa. So dynamics are changing, and I think that we're um, going to be in a much more complicated place than what we think we are. Great power competition sounds very clean, but we need to understand the, the, the complexity of it below that level. So can you expand more on the hybrid threat and the asymmetric and what what are you researching and seeing right now and what do you think we're going to see in the future? I don't think we're going to see much of a change. I think uh, f- from where I stand and in, in, in the work that, that we do and the type of analysis and within the hybrid warfare, asymmetric warfare space is that, um, you know, anything can be used anything can be an instrument of war and that that is unfortunate but we also have um, to uh, be realistic and accept the fact that anything can be so um, and primarily the human element that we're still not fully understanding I mean looking at right now just as as an example um, I'm focused a lot on the Balkans because Balkans is we're not discussing or tracking Balkans as much as our European partners are and NATO and they are uh, looking at Balkans as a very hot spot. I mean, it's been a hot spot just because, you know, the war ended, what, 20 years ago, peace agreements were signed. The vulnerability that exists on the ground that is primed for mobilization, radicalization, and ultimately weaponization of people is a uh, perfect domain to exercise all of these different elements of hybrid or asymmetric warfare, which our adversary Russia is actually doing, and not just Russia, but other state and non-state actors, agitating populations where post-war terrain hasn't really cleared a lot of the the, the fragmentation that happened, that transitional justice never really worked and never really happened. These, these, These elements create cleavages, fractures uh, within the population and therefore create vulnerability for influence. And by influence, I mean to influence to mobilize, weaponize people at the end of the day. And so when we see some of the people from Serbia, for example, going to fight in Donbass, um, in, in Ukraine, it's not that they went to fight when they were interviewed and, and asked, why are, what are they doing there? evoking 1389 Kosovo battle and the need to be like Tsar Lazar and to defend the brotherhood of Slavs. I mean, you know, to, to, to a kind of a Western listener, this is, this is crazy. This is irrational stuff, right? But it is actually very, there is logic to this type of psychological warfare mechanism that our adversaries are using. So when I look at, uh, for example, just yesterday looking at Sputnik and Russia TV, 
for the context of the Balkans, it's very easy to watch and to see that their understanding of the human element and human psychology is is very advanced, and they're not afraid to use it. Um, and, and I think that we can do better uh, in putting the human at the center of this the great power competition or the great state power competition, that the human is still at the center of it all. Everything else is just a mechanism that is being used to influence the human element at the end of the day. And we have to be able to do better in understanding it. Are those populations, not not just in the Balkans, but in general, as you said, the weaponization of the human and weaponizing populations, are they susceptible to the advances in AI that bring about things like deep fakes? Is this the same problem we've had with propaganda, or is this exacerbated by these kind of disruptive technologies? I think it's, it's, it's exacerbated. It's just amplified. So now we have the opportunity to influence more people faster, uh, to shift these narratives. And it is it's fascinating. It shouldn't surprise us, actually. We should not be surprised by the fact that uh, the advancement of technology has only allowed us, but also our adversaries, to operate on a more or less same level when it comes to influencing others. So now I can shoot a message, I know what to say in it, and it will reach a far greater amount of people because everyone has smartphones for the most part. Even in the most rural areas of the world, you see phones and you know they could be used for good and they could be used for bad, but they're absolutely the technological disruption as, you know, I'm using air quotation. I, I think it's just, a, I, I don't think that we should be looking at it as a, as a disruption and Anymore. It's a it's a status quo. It's become a normal modus operandi. And uh, if we look at that phenomenon, if we stop looking at the phenomenon as something extraordinary, then I think we can just accept it and deal with it a, a lot better. Because we're looking at technology too much as a problem, not looking at the people as a problem. So you you wrote a piece for the Mad Scientist blog with uh, Lieutenant Colonel Arnell David and Dr. Patrick James Christian. Uh, it was called Psychological Warfare in the Human Domain, Mixing AI-Powered Technology with Psychosocial Engagement. So can you, can you tell us a little bit about that piece and what led the three of you to write that? Sure, yeah. Well, I've, uh, Dr. Patrick Christian and I have been working together since 2010 when we formed our little research company. He was retiring as a lieutenant colonel from Special Forces. We were actually sitting in a class, in our PhD class together, in a class, a History and Memory of Conflict. And we had this profound conversations, me being from the Balkans, uh, studying, writing, uh, anything and everything that has to do with psychology of violence and weaponization of people, because I grew up in that context. I watched people be polarized, and I always found it fascinating how people can uh, can be so easily influenced, and to the point where you know n- neighbors will turn on neighbors. So this was always my guiding question since I was a child watching that happen around me. So when Dr. Christian and I met and started putting these training materials together for special forces, our focus has always been on operationalizing psychology and sociology primarily uh, for the special forces. So it's not so much 
that we are sitting here as some, you know, doctors of psychology, but it's like, how do I help you, PSYOP team, understand that we shouldn't be messaging the prefrontal cortex, but we should be messaging the amygdala. This is where emotions are made. This is where, so, you know, we, we started putting together these the, the training programs, and actually uh, General Linder was instrumental in this process. He invited us to come and redo a lot of the culture curriculum at Bragg because he realized that what's being taught in the cultural space is really the much more complex of uh, complex space of human domain. So we started calling that program the human domain program rather than culture because a lot of times people will say, oh, culture is, you know, how do you drink tea and don't show your feet? And that really undermines a lot of the uh, complexity that exists on the ground that our teams have to navigate through and engage and message. And so in that process, uh, Colonel uh, David was with the Army Futures command while I was here in, in, well, in Virginia. And he was very interested in the work that we were doing and training programs that we were putting together for both PSYOP, civil affairs, and SF in general. And in speaking with him, and he had just published a book with General Cleveland, The Military Strategy for 21st Century, that specifically focused and highlighted the need for even the 21st century engagement needs to include the human element, the human condition or human domain or whatever we want to call it, the human aspects of military operations, the you know whatever the latest acronym is. But I think we all know that we're talking about a human uh, human element in this. And, and over the course of a uh, number of years of us working together, thinking, collaborating, we said, you know, we should put together a, an article to explain that we need to pay more attention to operationalizing social science, but not political science. So what science serves our special operations community the most? Political scientists will explain to you political trajectories of building a state focused on this sort of classical realist or liberal theories or structuralism, all of that. Great. Fantastic. Awesome. But that's one level of analysis. That does not get into how does a mind get weaponized? How do we... Political scientists... It drove beautifully the narrative of Tunisia is now a democracy after Ben Ali's rule fell, right? We have even the Islamist party sharing power with the secularists. That's great. But not a single political scientist has been able to tell me, well, how do we have the largest number of Tunisian young people joining ISIS in Syria? when we have democracy. So we're evaluating a lot of these variables against each other and understanding that we lack operationalizing psychology to in the way that it needs to be. And especially with you know the torture cases, American Psychological Association likes to tell us, well, you can't collaborate with the military or you can't be a member of our you know, <laughs> highbrow society uh, because I think there's this inherent misunderstanding of what we do. And so we said, no, we just need to continue and engage the community in understanding that this isn't some theoretical, academic, high-level stuff that we're doing. This is highly operationalized. So uh, Colonel David loved a lot of the uh, visuals that we put together to help a PSYOP team, for example, understand how to message the amygdala. Well, what is amygdala? What does it do? How is it connected to the rest of the limbic system? Why does it matter? And so then, and practicing, if you put this message for this community, well, it's too much attacking 
attacking the rational brain, you know, like the, the whole uh, campaign, turn away, don't go, hashtag ISIS, right, uh, was, was uh, not effective because that is telling a person directly what to do. And we know that people don't do what we tell them to do, that there is a deeper subconscious space that we need to access. And that is not crazy psych talk. That is highly operationalized. I mean, look at how companies sell us things, right? You know, what, where do they tap into what type of, what part of our brain? And so once we started to work on that, we realized that that also isn't something that big data can provide for our community. Big data looks at big numbers. Those big numbers are not necessarily reflective of the subconscious space, though we can quantify emotion. We just need to have the appropriate variables to analyze. And so um, that's our article really uh, focused on that, but then it also focused on well, if we add the layer of artificial intelligence. So what is this going to look like if we start developing programs where you put on, you know, this sort of virtual reality or augmented reality glasses on and you're sitting with a village elder, for example, and you may not have been trained on every single emotional variable that he or she, mostly he, will display or those around them. But if we feed that with, with the data that we have that we collect that we then analyze according to some of these subconscious emotional elements facial recognition this, and, right, and things like that then then your facial movements that there are some that could be argued oh there's some universal ones yeah but even behind your smile there might be something, <laughs> something nefarious right exactly so uh, in order to prevent you know, engagement mistakes in order to uh, know how to uh, communicate in a way that will get the message in a way that is not actually opening up space for, for counterattacks. And so we played with that idea. We're actually working on a project that, um, you know, DARPA was interested in this as well. And so we'll see how far we get into... Uh, into uh, the, the the program that we're working on right now, of, of course, that requires a lot of support. But I don't think that we are. I mean, we are mad scientists after all, right? But I don't think that we're crazy enough to imagine that we can quantify emotion, that we can utilize uh, psychology, sociology, and then sort of embed that into anthropology for the flavor of the target audience. Um, and be able to improve a lot of our operations, a lot of our engagement, and a lot of our messaging. Bringing that point, people are vulnerable to these different weaponizations, and um, we, you know, we have to be able to tell emotionally, um, psychologically, where people are at. And I think to flip that on its head a little, what about you know, in terms of you've you've worked with a lot of operational units. So, what do we do to protect our own? How do we how do we defend against this weaponization? How do we um, not essentially give the game away? I think if we have, and this is this is an issue that I've spent a lot of time with various NATO uh, types of engagements too, and especially in East Europe. But we're 
not on the same page when it comes to synchronizing our understanding of the human domain, right? And so our training across um, isn't, you know, maybe this country gets this domain a little bit more and they're using using some of the more advanced sort of thinking and analysis and therefore improve their their engagement and their operations and their messaging. But I think if we're all synchronized in our understanding in the in the non-lethal space, right? Because we all know how to operate a certain set of lethal elements, yeah, right? Go. There's no, you know, the NATO member states are not doing not shooting guns differently than we're shooting guns. Like we're synchronized on. In, there's physics behind the the lethal stuff and chemistry, but there's no synchronized social science in the non-kinetic, non-lethal space. And I think once we have that synchronized, then we can have a better game and then we will not be able to give our game away. But we're not there yet. And I, I just, I, you know, I'm a... I'm, I'm a social scientist. I don't. I don't get into politics of it all. But I find it fascinating that we have formula for everything: hard sciences, physics, chemistry, biology, you name it. But in the human element space, we have not. We have not utilized any sort of science. What are the biggest scientific disciplines you feel like? Are lacking right now in this space. If you're trying to understand a person, number one science that helps us explain people, their behavior and their 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 feelings and their thoughts is psychology. But I'll explain a couple of problems associated with each of the sciences, right? So psychology is number one. Then we have sociology, we have anthropology. Psychology essentially explains to us how the mind works. And of course, with psychology, I can, I can group the, the neuroscience as well, because neuroscience looks more deeply into the brain. And as you know, uh, and I'm sure our listeners know, neuroscience is still every day is developing new methods and mechanisms for understanding uh, and discovering more and more about our brains, right? Because the brain is the most complicated system ever, right? And we still don't have a perfect formula in terms of how it all works. But we have a very good idea um, that there are certain chemicals, that there's parts of our brain that process things certain way. And your brain, Luke, is not different than my brain. Um, you have amygdala and I have amygdala and so does every single person on this planet. And it is the oldest, most primal part of our brain. It is the part of the brain that's responsible for the fight-flight situation and so on and so forth. And we all have prefrontal cortex and then many different areas associated with it. And that's mostly our executive sort of part of the brain, the one that says, get up, put on that suit, go to DC, interview people, and <laughs> right? And so understanding of the brain applies in, in this context, then that's that's the psychology on an individual level, and we can take it further out, and then we start to understand and utilize it to explain a group behavior. So that's when we get into, well, how do we engage this entire set or subset of this particular population in order to change their behavior, in, in order to influence them? So now you're playing with psychology and sociology, or what some people would say is social psychology. Then you're getting into the background of it all would be anthropology, because anthropology, one reason I think 
why there were certain issues with anthropology alone being utilized in early human terrain programs is because anthropology is a descriptive science. It will tell me, it will describe what people are doing, but not why. And that's where psychology and sociology, especially psychology, can help. Now, the caveats. All of these three disciplines, the social sciences, have been developed in the West. They have evolved in the West. They have been largely operationalized in the West. As you know, psychology is really difficult to argue in parts of the world where, oh, it's for crazy people, you know, nobody, oh, you don't talk about psychology. I mean, then when you look at over in the uh, Russia problem side, then we have psychologists out of Moscow State University who have always worked in the service of the state. Their psychologists are not there to help people in the community. They're there to break down, analyze every, you know, the brilliance of Soviet social engineering back in the day. That is all driven by psychologists and knowledge of psychology. So we are in this very interesting space where where we have the sciences. I remember when I was, uh, when I, after the war, when I moved to the States and I wanted to go, I studied psychology and I wanted to go back and work with all the refugees and people who have been, you know, from family members on all sides of the conflict to go back and start the reconciliation process. So I said, of course, I'm gonna go study psychology in order to know how to do this. These people will be traumatized. We're all traumatized. We have to work through the trauma element. And a professor of mine, when I asked him and I said, you know, I said, everything that we're learning here is great, but I can't see doing this with my culture over there. My people are different, you know, in the Balkans. I said, you can't really counsel one-on-one. You have to bring in a whole community, the whole family, the whole village. And I remember asking him, is there such a thing as like cross-cultural psychology or something of that kind? This was... This was late, this was maybe early 2000s, when American Psychological Association didn't even have, they started later on, I think it was Division Six that they implemented on cross-cultural psychology, because up until that point, psychology was only looking at an individual and a Western type of individual. And everyone non-Western, oh, that's a subject for anthropologists to describe, but not to explain through a psychological lens why and how this population works, behaves, thinks, and not just overtly, but covertly to what are the driving mechanisms of their behavior, of their pain. And I remember when General Linder wanted us to do this, he goes, I want you guys to be able to explain, you know, to our to our special operators what what are their nightmares and what are their dreams? You know, once you're able to tap into nightmares and into dreams, and this isn't anecdotal stuff, this is scientifically being able to break into that space, then you have a real power and a real potential to influence. We interviewed uh, Dr. Rita Konaev uh, from Georgetown CSET before, and I think what you said is exactly what she described before, which is we don't see things the way they are. We see things the way we are. Um, and I think your, your emphasis on this Western civilization bias of, of psychology is important to that. So... Looking into the future, and we're thinking about these various populations, 
And we know physiologically nothing's going to change in the brain. It's still going to operate the same ways. But how do we change? How do do populations change? Are they more resilient against this messaging? Are they more susceptible? What, What do we look like in the future as humans? The basic functions of our brain aren't going to change. It's like, you know, your kidney won't change. Um, the way it works but because brain is is fascinating organ and because it, it is the organ that processes everything you know sense of smell memories everything is processed in our brains and the more we're discovering how the brain works I think the more advancement in science will help us understand and and I mean if you read like neuroscience news you you see these discoveries and and we have to put a lot more emphasis in not only knowledge discovery for the sake of knowledge discovery, but also to be able to do something with it. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not a typical academic. I am out in the field doing research all the time, doing observations, um, ethnographic studies, trying to understand, you know, how does globalization, for example, impact the way this particular traditional community has operated so far, thus far, and then how is it changing? And of course, it's changing the brain patterns. For example, you know, if you have, um, if a nomad is no longer able to be nomad because of climate change, nomad has a particular wiring, if you will, in their brain. Or I'm just using nomad as an example, but we all do, right? In the West, we're very adaptable. So we've adapted. We can live in cities. We can live in the periphery and so on. We complain about it, but we we got it. But traditional societies where there's just been this one way of wiring your brain around what it means to be a man, what it means to be a nomad, what it means to have the past, what it means to have a future, that all exists in the brain. And now, all of a sudden, that brain is absorbing information that's coming in through, you know, Communication, trade, travel, changes due to globalization, young people leaving, moving to the cities. The brain has to adapt. The brain has to change. Well, if I have, in my mind, my brain has always imagined this one type of identity of who I am. And again, put yourself outside you know, our context where we can imagine that we can be anything we want to be. You know, we raise our kids. Oh, you can be anything. It's a very, very American mindset. Right, right. No, you can be one thing and one thing only in many, many societies. So it's almost like the brain is forced in many ways to rewire, to rewire, to reimagine, to rethink, to, to deconstruct this narrative, this idea that, Oh, are you going to be okay if you're no longer a nomad? Well, some are. You know, I I was just down teaching at the Joint Special Operations University, and we had a fantastic conversation with a couple of senior-level military uh, officers from Niger, Nigeria, and we're talking about nomads because it's such a vulnerable group to Boko Haram. And he said, well, you know what? Some of them are now taxi drivers. And I said, fantastic, because their brains, and somehow this is the, going back to your resilience question. Resilience is a, it's a combination, of, a combination of nature and nurture. I don't think the scientists, we have broken the code on, you can build resilience, but there could also be a 
certain physiological ways in which we are wired for resilience. You can train for adaptation. For example, you know, when uh, they say, well, yeah, we know we have a problem with our, with our nomads because climate change is sort of not helping them stay alive and survive. But that's why we build them farms. I said, but you're changing everything about this brain that only knows how to be a nomad into a brain that now has to absorb what it's like and how to be a farmer. And that's too much of a, too fast of a change for that brain to rewire in a way. It may happen over the course of time. So we have to be able to understand that although our brains function the same way. We have an incredible potential to utilize the brain sciences, right? All of the associated sciences around studying the, 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 the function of the brain and the mind, if you will, as well, to do some incredible, incredible work on a, on a ground level with this. I think we just really need to put a lot of thought and resources into investing in understanding of, of the brain of, of our target audience and whether that's state, non-state actors, and then use the same type of science to build resilience against bad influences. VOs, they're not scientists, but they have intuitive knowledge on how to further destabilize and break, whether it's an individual or a family or a tribe or a whole community. You know, we're, we're looking, we talk a lot about the future, I'm a mad scientist, and truthfully, the future right now is in high school, it's in middle school, elementary school, so if you were talking to future scientists, future researchers, what advice would you give them in your fields? Mm. Well, in my past life, before my work with our special operations community, actually, I was a regular university professor, and so I worked with a lot of students just coming out of high school, freshmen, right, taking international relations, political science classes, cross-cultural communication, war and violence, conflict. And, and, and I, I always taught my courses and worked with students to develop critical thinking, to develop curiosity, to develop um, to be agile in the way they think about the world, in the way they think about any type of phenomenon. You know, as a social scientist, we study everything we study is just a phenomenon. Okay, so violence is one phenomenon. How do we approach it? How do we study what undermines it, what promotes it? And uh, I think younger generations now, uh, with what is available to them, that none of that was available to us when I was doing, when I was studying. Um, they have an incredible potential to advance knowledge production even faster than, than we are, than our generation is, or even other generations. Um, and I, and I, I the, the, my only hope <laughs> is actually in our, in our young scientists, emerging scientists, not only in the STEM, we are promoting STEM a lot, but I think we, if we don't promote humanities and social sciences, we are going to, oh, I, I don't want to imagine the world where we understand how to make machines, but we still lack basic understanding of human beings and use, u utilizing that. And so my hope is that we get to revitalize social sciences and get students to understand that STEM isn't everything. It's, it's, it's massively important, but 
even STEM is always in the service of and or studying of the, the people, right? So big hopes there, but with caution to not just focus on STEM, but to actually make a case and argument for social sciences and humanities too. So I just want to transition real quick to what we call our rapid fire questions, although you could take your time. Um, but we ask these to every guest. And the first is, what technology or trend keeps you up at night? Well, it's pretty much everything that's that's going on um, because a lot of my analysis, you know, focus on broad major trends. And so everything from our ability to weaponize through memes to the ability to so rapidly advance our nuclear weapons. So you have this spectrum, and that spectrum, is, it, it, it's, it's only developing faster. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, can't, I can't separate anything specific because when I look at and apply my analytical lens, I have to look at things holistically. Um, and, and how all of that affects our, you know, collective humanity at this point. So, yeah, lots of... Across lots of Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> Everything. Everything, um, yeah. So what can you tell our listeners that you're willing to share on air? What's something about you most people might not know? Okay, so now it's public. <laughs> because I think last time we had some colleagues up here... And uh, we were all out for dinner, and I was running late, and I said, I'm sorry, I have to go. I have a class. And they said, what class? You're taking night classes or something? I said, no, I have my tango class. And so everyone just said, you tango? <laughs> I said, yeah, actually, I tango. <laughs> so now it's become this joke that Dr. Nesik and her tango classes. So now I can, <laughs> now right, this so is my, have, I tango. We but have yes, Dr. I, Alex Nesik, <laughs> tango queen on the podcast. <laughs> Well, right. I also salsa and other dances, but tango is my, my <laughs> thing, so I quite enjoy it. That's awesome. So, uh, finally, uh, what is your favorite movie? So, my favorite movie is, I think, actually, um, this movie sort of relates to everything that I pretty much said in this in this interview. Um, have you heard of, uh, it's a German film, it's called Lives of Others. I have not heard of it. Well, I highly encourage you to watch it. And the movie is about an SS officer who was assigned to listen and track this uh, couple uh, who are artists. They, They put on plays and musicals, I think, back in East Germany, right? And so he's... He's assigned to to listen to them, to track them, and so he has this little apartment that he sets up right above, across from theirs, and he's uh, constantly, you know, reporting and writing all of their activities. But he gets to learn their stories. He gets to see them fight, um, make love, eat, drink, hide, and so on and so forth. And it's a very it, it's portrayed the movie the, the the humanity of it is portrayed in a in a beautiful way because the SS officer over the course of time comes to really enjoy learning about them and and you can watch how he becomes more of a human being rather than just this machine who's just sitting there recording and typing everything and there's a there's a twist in it so i don't want to i don't want to no give spoilers. it away yeah <laughs> but it's a beautiful film um so it is one of my favorite movies i think it came out in 
early 2000s, but I think I can watch this movie all the time and never get bored of it. Because See, that, that's fantastic. It's our first foreign film uh, that someone's oh. mentioned on the podcast, and probably the first one that a lot of people haven't watched. Well, then... So now we I, have a great recommendation. Sure, and then maybe at our get-together, maybe we can have a movie discussion and why we why we promote these movies in the mass. It's a, it's a, from a, actually from a mad scientist perspective, there's a lot of science, a lot of the psychology behind what we're doing in this film. So I think this is why I really enjoy it. So. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Is there anything else you wanted to say really to our listeners at all? Uh, well, thank you. This was, this was fantastic. I'm so thrilled that Mad Scientist Initiative exists, that it gets um, a lot of us involved. And it actually, ever since I started getting involved, it's it's been constantly on my mind as something, oh, I can really, I can write for, but it's opened up space to think. Uh, to be creative, not to stay rigid in our own little, you know, cooped up areas of operation, but to actually think bigger. And I, and I, and I absolutely have enjoyed working with and collaborating with so many colleagues on, on this. So I appreciate your work and everyone on the team. Um, and hopefully more people will get involved and in understanding that um, there should be a natural s- synchronization behind. Um, us scientists and, and the army and the military larger, but social scientists, not just our heart scientists, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for thank coming you. in. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to The Convergence. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Alexandra Nesik, co-founder of Valkamir and visiting faculty at the Joint Special Operations University, U.S. SOCOM. You can connect with Mad Scientists through Twitter, at ArmyMadSci, and don't forget to subscribe to our blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil.